to the Micros Heart Show. We're live today and we're going to talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. We'll keep the Q&A open. We'll give everyone a chance to, to jump in and, and share their experiences and their thoughts. And I'll take a minute to just digest what's happened in the last week or so. So off the top of my head, not a lot of crazy changes. I've been focused on divesting a portion of my real estate portfolio that is uh, mostly focused on having partners. So anywhere that I have a partner or anywhere that I have, you know, a relationship that it, it's costing me time, any, any property costs me time, whether I got to deal directly with the tenants, whether it's a property where they still have my number from before I hired property management, whether it's a JP Venture partner where I'm expected to carry some of the load, uh, even where I'm not, I'm still involved, right? Having those conversations with partners is, is a time investment, right? And that's a lower return on time. A property with no partners has a much better return on time, right? So you guys know that now I'm very much pro raising it, raising the money you need for the property in debt. So, you know, get that mortgage on the property as opposed to bringing that partner on. I think that even if it's a higher fixed cost on a monthly basis, from a return on time perspective, from you know all of that, it's much, much better. So, oh, hey, how you doing? We love you, Mike. Yeah, thanks, appreciate that, Kyle. Maisie says, hey, Mike, quick question. Would you spend on a vehicle? Okay, what is the maximum you would spend on a vehicle if you're making $55,000 a year? just starting out. So if you're just starting out, you have to ask yourself, what do you need the vehicle for, right? And in most cases, I think you'll find that a vehicle is used for transportation from point A to point B. I can see the argument being made if you had a bunch of rental properties that you could use it for work purposes and you could use therefore a bigger vehicle. But I would counter argue and, and say that I used to move two by fours and toilets and everything else in a Ford Focus. I put the back seats down. I could load the two by fours in from the trunk with the trunk closed right through to the front windshield dash. I'd get an eight foot two by four, like 20 of them, I think at a time. And you know, at the time I had a couple of rental properties, that's enough. Um, so in most cases I would argue a small car, like a Ford Focus, it's a fantastic, like a 2010 Ford Focus with decently low kilometers or miles. Right now on KGG Craigslist, you pick them up for like $2,000 cash. So you can get a decent, reliable car that's cheap to fix, like brakes go, tires go, whatever. On a Ford Focus, we're talking a thousand max for like pretty much any repair I can think of. And then if the repair is more than that, you just sell the car for a thousand. That's like the floor. So the car's worth them. The worst Ford Focus is like 800 bucks, 900 bucks on, online. And the good ones are like two, three grand. So the difference between the worst and the best is not much. So you don't have to put much money into the vehicle at all. Um, other great cars in the small, you know, car that are, that are versatile, versatile. I like the Honda Civic. I like the Toyota Corolla. I like the Ford Focus. I like anything in that, in that size is pretty great. It's really efficient on gas. Um, and it's affordable car to get you from point A to point B. You know, you don't need a car for, you don't need a truck. I haven't seen a good argument for a truck unless you're a full-time contractor, in which case you probably need a truck. But if you own rental properties, Eventually your time's gonna be so valuable. It's not worth carrying your own materials And so at some point the need for a truck disappears too because you want to be outsourcing that your time will be too valuable 
to be moving things in your truck. I mean, in the beginning of the journey, I can see the argument for the truck. Um, it depends. If you're a pretty handy person, I think it could make sense to have a small like Ranger or something to that effect, like a GMC, a Canyon or something, the smallest type of truck, which can do a lot if you get a roof rack too. Um, you can put drywall on it and all that kind of stuff. And then eventually I'll grow that and no longer need a truck at all. So great question. But how much do you spend? A couple of grand. You buy it in cash. People are buying, they're financing, buying property, they're buying um, cars or trucks and saying, oh, it's 0% interest. What about the fact that the minute you buy it, you lose one third of your investment when you buy new? It's like, hey, I just bought a truck. It was a great deal. It was as good as buying used. And I'm like, what'd you pay for the truck? They're like, well, okay, so regular it's $50,000, but I got an amazing deal. It's as, it's as good as a used truck, $30,000, 0% financed. And I'm like, I, I hear people message me at these stories and I'm like, I go on like Facebook Marketplace, I go on Kijiji and I see trucks on there for like 3,000, 4,000, $5,000. They'd have nothing wrong with them. And it's just, like you can buy an old F-150, like a 2008 F-150 with low, low miles. And it would work just fine for your purposes. And you probably don't need that new truck. You probably don't need that new car. You can eventually get to a point where if you're a car guy and you love that, like, cool, save up for it um, and get yourself something. Eventually, I'll, I'll get myself a Tesla. Uh, it's on my, my goals list. But that's an abundance mindset thing. I think you can, you can earn that and you've gotten to a point of, hey, I'm financially independent. Hey, I've, you know, I no longer need to work. That's where I think it can really make sense. Um, to bring on the luxuries into your life. When you earn the right to have luxuries, everyone wants luxuries day one, and you don't deserve them. You don't deserve to have nice things until you've worked hard enough and saved up that money to then earn it. If you don't have the cash, don't buy it. Even if you have the cash, go and invest in something else and use the passive income from that investment to pay for the luxuries that you want. You save up 100 grand, you're like, cool, I want the new Tesla. No, take the 100 grand, buy a rental property, burr it, buy another one, buy another rental property, buy another rental property, and then with the rental income from those rental properties, you can afford the payment on Tesla. Once you've earned it, right? You gotta earn it, do it, do the work first, put in the savings, and then you can have it. So that's my advice for anyone starting out is, is follow that kind of strategy. Um, if you're making 55 grand a year, I used to argue the 10% rule. Your car should never be worth more than 10% of your annual take home annual take-home income yeah so if you're making 55,000 I don't know your take-home is probably like 40,000 a year if you got education credits maybe you'd like 50,000 because you're not paying much tax with the education credit offsets if you just graduated school so yeah you can do the math make like 35 40,000 net you get a $4,000 car that's what you get and that's a good enough car it can be a nice car you'd be surprised the deals you'd be able to find out there with low miles on them and I've had by the way most of all my cars have been like 10 years old that's like the sweet spot and uh, with a 10-year-old car, I've always just cycled through the car every couple of years, selling it for exactly what I bought it for or more, and put almost nothing into it from a repairs perspective. When a car starts to need repairs, starting to get to that point where the struts are going or where you know, tires are getting bad, brakes are getting bad, and I just sell the car and I buy another one that has you know, good brakes and whatever, and I buy it cheap. And so I used to cycle through cars at almost no cost, um, always getting a new car every couple of years, and I say new, I need new used. But you don't have to be me, you can, you can do your own thing. It worked for me, it would work for you, but for each person their own. Kaylee says midterm season, hey Mike, been a bit. Midterm season, bummer, yeah, I mean, school sucks. It's, 
I couldn't wait to graduate from school. The hardest part of going through college or university is that you're paying to learn. In the real world, you get paid to learn. You take on a real estate property, you're gonna get paid to put in the time and learn. You take on a professional like an apprenticeship or you know any type of internship and you get paid typically to learn. So school, they got it all wrong. Like we should be getting paid to learn. And then as you build skills, you get paid more. Like initially maybe you get paid below minimum wage because you're not worth anything. And then eventually you get paid minimum wage. And then eventually maybe you get $20 an hour, $30 an hour, whatever. As you build skills, you should get paid more. But I think you know school's a big farce, a big crappy. The opportunity cost of going to university is so high. Four years of your life compounded over your whole life. If you just made like 50 grand a year for that four years you were in school, and invested that you have millions of dollars in retirement. So I don't know. I don't know about school. It's tough. I did it. Went to one of the top business schools in Canada. I can tell you I've been I'm probably overeducated for what I for what I needed in my real estate uh, journey. Jermaine says, Hey, hey, how you doing? Tommy, hey, how you doing? Hey Mike, been catching the replays, but haven't been able to get on a live for a while. Greatest great to see you staying consistent and killing it with providing value. Thanks, Tommy. Appreciate that. Yeah, consistency is key in pretty much everything that you do. As long as you don't give up, you'll have success. You might fail initially, but if you continue to try, if you don't give up, eventually you will have success at that thing. And I mean, I'm not saying I'm having success at YouTube really because I've been doing YouTube for a couple of years now and I'm still not very successful. When you compare to like my peers, like, you know, even Matt McKeever or Graham Stephan or, you know, me, Kevin, I watched those guys from like, you know, I was hanging out with those guys when they had a few thousand like well, well, well below like 100,000 subscribers, right? And watching them grow in their trajectories and, and seeing them be super successful now, comparatively, I'm like, geez, you know, I really should have been. But at the same time, my goals were not to build a huge YouTube channel. My goal has, I don't have any courses that I sell. I'm not really monetizing it. My goal again is just, this is an outlet for me to give back. This is my community service. I believe that I wanted someone like me to exist, a mentor like me to just, Tell me I'm making mistakes and tell me what they know. Um, and I wish I had that that I could have listened into when I started this journey in 2011, 2010, 2011, 2012. There really wasn't anyone like that. And then I guess by 2015, I kind of noticed bigger pockets and some other people started jumping on. And so I don't know. I think there's a need for it. And as long as there's a need for it and I continue to enjoy it, I'll continue to provide the value and it will continue to be for free. William, how you doing? Good to see you on. Trevor, good to see you on as well. Trevor's a Honda Civic Club member. <laughs> Tommy says, I was wondering what possible options there'd be to access $1 million in equity in a primary residence if you don't qualify for the amount fully based on income. How do you access it with a HELOC or a refi? Hmm, good question. So it's challenging here in Canada to borrow when you don't have the income to service the debt. A lot of the banks are limited by their inability to lend where there isn't income. There's called mortgage trust testing rules that just don't allow it. So one of the challenges is how do you show the bank that you're going to be able to make the interest payments? And I think a big piece is presenting the narrative to a lender who's willing to take that kind of risk. You're going to be looking for an equity-based asset lender. They're like, hey, you have a lot of assets or you have a good amount of equity here. What's the plan? What are you doing with the cash? You can say, hey, I'm borrowing the cash to buy another rental property. This rental property will produce this cash flow and this cash flow will pay this interest on the HELOC. And if you can present that narrative, that's key. 
So that's the biggest thing you can do is find a lender. It might be a B lender or an alt lender. You know, they, they might charge you 5% interest, but at least you can get access to that capital. It might not be at 2% right now, like you're gonna get at the big banks if you can qualify. It's better than nothing. Um, if you're a high net worth individual and you have a million bucks in your home, I guess that would kind of make you at least on the edge of high net worth. You could go, something you can do, you can go and create a stock portfolio with private banking and explain you want to refinance your house and put that money into a stock portfolio. And in most cases, they, they, get, they say, hey, if you bring the stock portfolio to us, you let us manage it. Uh, you know, Scotiabank, TD, BMO, most of the private banking, high net worth folks there will work with you and say, we will take the equity from your house and if you pledge it to a stock portfolio with us, we'll let you take the, the income and the dividend income from the stock portfolio, we'll service the debt. And so without the income, they'll let you borrow the money. So there'll be strings, they'll tell you what you can do with the money they're gonna give you out of your house, but at least you can get access to it and put it in the stock market or something to that effect. So there are options. Next question. Jermaine says, question, saved $600,000 cash. That's amazing, by the way. Um, and got into lending and buy cash flowing investment, flip or any comment would be appreciated. Um, what is, I guess the question. So you're, you've saved 600,000, you wonder what to do next, it sounds like. Um, you're getting into lending, looking to buy cash flowing investments. What do you do with the cash? So it depends on your goals, right? I can't say there's a one size fits all. You can definitely make the highest ROI on your $600,000 by flipping, if you're good. It's the best return you can, you can get. And the caveat being, if you're good and you work hard at it. If you don't want a full-time job flipping, another option might be a more passive burr strategy, but a burr is just like a flip. There's not much difference, except that you're focused on keeping the property, refinancing it, and, and I guess it depends if you have a job too, whether you can actually refinance it. And there's a whole bunch of other factors at play. But that's the active strategy. That's like I'm taking my money and I'm working to get a higher return on my investment. Now, if you want a more passive strategy, private lending is fantastic. Um, I think it's really cool that you can take, you know, private lending cash, six hundred grand, turn that into 60, 70 grand a year. That's awesome, right? And that can be pretty passive. Now there's a layer of maybe you got to find someone, some, a series of people to lend it to, or you know, mortgage investments to invest into. So there's some active. But once you set it up for six months or a year term, it's set it and forget it and you're good to go. Whereas with a rental property, it's ongoing all the time. I'll give you an example. Today, I just got a text from one of my favorite properties. It's a really turnkey bungalow, duplex. I barely have any issues with it ever. It's one of the only properties I still partially self-manage. And it's just because the tenants have my number. And so they'll often reach out to me and send the manager. And there's a bee problem, right? The bees got into the siding or something, created a little nest. It's, it's just wild, but that kind of stuff happens. And like, I'm not complaining. It, it is what it is. It's part of the job. But for someone who wanted something truly passive, you're sitting at dinner and you get a text like that and then you got to, you know, message your pest control company and arrange a time with the tenant. That coordination could take you a half hour, an hour, you know, it's a few hundred bucks savings if you do it yourself versus, you know, some property manager hiring someone expensive. But, you know, that kind of stuff isn't passive. And that's with the property that like, I have a, this duplex is super turnkey. Everything's done on it and still stuff happens, right? Like bees get into the siding and create an issue. Like that's just life. Eaves troughs get full and you send someone by to clean them up. Things happen, right? And that's just, 
that's just part of the journey um, with rental properties. And so it isn't, it isn't passive like it is with lending. The next step after lending, I think, is sort of like a dividend portfolio. I think that could be even more passive than a lending portfolio, but a lower return. Um, in an ideal world, you just work, you go find like five or 10 mortgage brokers and you hire them to find you the deals. They do all the paperwork. You go, you get your lawyer, your, your good real estate mortgage lending lawyer who does all your contracts for you. He, you basically wire the money to him. He takes care of it and puts it on the title of the property. You don't do any paperwork. You call a mortgage broker, you call your lawyer, it's done. That's, that's private lending, you know, a little bit lower return, but that's passive private lending. There are varying degrees of private lending. You could be actively involved, almost like a mortgage broker, searching for deals, doing your own appraisals, or you could be on the other side of the spectrum where the mortgage broker gets you the appraisal, pitches it all to you, and you're just like, yes or no, and you call your lawyer and you wire the money. So it depends how, how passive you wanna be and what kind of return you're looking to get. If you have time, then you can get a better return than say 10%, you get 15 or 20%, sometimes even in the mortgage lending space, depending on the type of deal you're trying to fund. If it's you know, new construction or development plays, sometimes you can even get a piece of the equity for doing nothing, um, in which case that can be pretty attractive too. You'd be surprised, it's like 600 grand. Some people are like, oh, 600 grand's nothing. 600 grand's enough to live on. Like if you can put that to work, that can produce enough passive income that you can live on it. D. How to, good evening. Logan says, it looks weird when you jack up a Ford Focus though. Yeah, Logan, I don't know. I don't, uh, I've never jacked up a Ford Focus before, but I, I'll take your, uh, your word for it. Mr. McHale says, hey, how's it going? It's going good. Thank you for asking. William says, hey Mike, I read an article this week about the importance of thinking of maximizing time over money. Thank you for moving me into this idea. It's definitely having a positive impact on me. William, that's fantastic. And that's been one that's been a challenge for me over the last five years. I've really been trying to struggle with you know being super cheap and frugal and focused on the value of the dollar at first without a regard for my time and now focused on of course I'm still trying to be optimized I'm still trying to save money if I can you know use a coupon and save 50 bucks I'm going to use the coupon if it doesn't take me much time but at the same time I'm not going to stand in line for an hour and fight to save five dollars my time is worth more than that and so I run in the equation frugality of time as number one factor, frugality of money as number two factor, and I sort of balance between the two. Now, I'm not so, I guess, ignorant or um, abundance mindset focused that I'm like, hey, whatever the cost, who cares? Like I'm still about optimizing. I'm still about trying to get my dollars to spread pretty far. I think that's an important um, aspect of most, most millionaires that you meet especially, you know, the wealthier ones too, you'll see that they have a, you know, focus on watching their dollars not slip out of their hands too quickly. That's a commonality that I've seen across most uh, millionaires. When they start to get a little bit richer, it looks like they're being more um, loose with their checkbook or loose with the, the fingers on the money, but it's not, it's just relative to what they're making, right? So if they're, you know, imagine someone has like a million dollars a year in income, who cares about $10 here or there? Because it actually doesn't affect them that much. Their time is worth so much that they're, they're still focused. They're not letting like 50,000 slip out of their, their hands. They're still focused on managing the bigger, bigger stuff, just not the small stuff. So that's a shift that you'll see as you build along the wealth curve. You have to change that mindset. And I think a lot of people, they don't want to get into the frugal mindset. So they never build the wealth. They just, they want the end result without, you know, you have to go through different mindset shifts in life. 
the mindset shift, the mindset I have now isn't the same and isn't the right mindset that I had when I was 19, when I bought my first property, right? I'm 28 in a few weeks here and so like nine years ago. Nine years ago when I was buying my first property, you know, it's a different, it's different than, than what it is now. I had a different mindset and that mindset served me well in that time. When my time wasn't valuable, when I was only worth 25 bucks an hour, a lot of decisions, decisions I was making to go get my own materials and to, you know, project manage and to save 50 bucks here and there, all of that added up and compounded over the years into multiple six figure um, savings that I then invested into deals, doubled and tripled, which became seven figure, right? So those decisions compounded into the success that I have today. Now, those same decisions wouldn't serve me well today. A 1% increase on my rate of return on my net worth this year will have a way bigger impact than a 25% cut, even a 50% cut on my spending. Like I could spend 50% more on everything, rent, food, you know, transportation, whatever. And if I get a 1% higher return on my portfolio, it'll more than make up for all of that net tax. So that's where I had a mindset shift going from you know, the three levers I talk about, that the only three levers you have to control your financial future, when you talk about like your spending, so trying to spend less and then what you can earn, so earning, and then the maximizing returns on the difference on your net worth. That third lever or category, when you don't have a high net worth, that lever doesn't matter. Like a million, like a thousand percent return on $5,000 is who cares? But that kind of return on multi-millions is huge, right? So return on investment becomes much more important later on in your journey than in the beginning of your journey. People are all, you know, they got like $5,000 saved up or 10,000 saved up. I'm like, Mike, you know, I gotta invest in this or this. And I'm like, pick something and ride. Like who cares? Whether you get a 6% return or a 10% return or a 15% return, at the beginning of your journey, it doesn't matter. $10,000 at 10% return is a $1,000 return, right? At 15% return, it's 1,500 bucks. We're talking about a $500 difference. Your time's probably better spent actually focused on reducing costs, reducing, you know, expenses at that point, at that net worth point. But as you build wealth, then the third lever, maximizing returns becomes way more important. So the mindset shift has to happen for you to progress and continue on. Thank you, Mike, I need to hear that, no problem. Gemmel Holm says, when do you think it's time to start thinking about quitting the full-time job for investing full-time? That's a tough one, I think it's good to start thinking about it early on. Thinking and planning allows you to visualize the success. And when you visualize the success, you reach it at much higher uh, probabilities. So it's important to think about it all the time. But when is it important to start seriously thinking about it and making a decision to jump ship? I think probably at the point when your real estate income, your, you know, your portfolio, your actual rental income net net is enough to cover your living expenses. That's the time you can start thinking about it. And I'll go a little bit past that. I get a couple more properties just to be safe past that point because things are gonna happen. You have vacancies or a couple of furnaces are gonna go. There's gonna be a flood in your area. A couple of tenants are gonna leave. Vacancy rates are gonna go up. And so if you play sensitivity on your numbers and you see your cash flow isn't quite enough to cover your living expenses, it's not time to quit yet. Unless you're like, hey, I'm gonna invest 40 hours of my time into real estate and treat that as like a full-time job, maybe take on a flip a year, then you can go ahead and go you know, all out, full, full tilt. So I guess it depends on your risk appetite and your confidence in your own skills and, and where you're at in your journey. Robin says, hi Mike, thanks for the valuable content. Any thoughts on Addy? 
I don't know what ADDY is, Addy. Address? <laughs> People sometimes say, what's the Addy? Contractors will text me, but like, hey, what's the Addy? Um, so maybe clarify that. I'm, it's like, it's going, going right over my head right now, actually. Maybe that's a stock symbol, I just don't know that company, ADDY. I can't think of it right now. D how to, I spoke to a friend of mine today who lives in the US. He says his Airbnb is doing quite well. He's the Airbnb house he lives in. He Airbnb his rooms out. Are you seeing an uptick in Airbnb in Florida? Um, D how to, we've been, I've been kind of monitoring the situation in Florida very loosely, just by talking to others who are doing it there. I myself on our uh, mansion property we have there, we rented it out on a seven month lease. We decided that it was too risky to, you know, be betting on the fluctuations with, you know, the UK, US border closed, Canada, US borders, you know, closed and all that. So we made a decision to just rent it out and we're making a little bit. We've got to rent it out to a great client, a wealthy person. But um, we're, yeah, we're making less for sure than what we've been making, but at least they're covering all the utilities and we're making a little bit of money. So um, yeah, it's not the best, but it could be worse. People losing their shirts, right? A lot of people have vacant Airbnbs for months and months. And so it, it could have been worse. Um, yeah, I hear things are bouncing back though from the people I'm talking to. It's not as good as it once was for sure. It, you know, whatever numbers you thought you were getting before, it's like 70% as good. But um, yeah, I'm probably, in your own house, it would make sense to do the Airbnb thing. I like the Airbnb renting rooms in your house idea in Florida. Like, again, I don't live in Florida, so I don't know, but I feel like in Florida, just in general, having Airbnb rooms is better than having roommates because if you get a bad guest, you can cancel the reservation and kick them out. But if you have a bad roommate, it's a long process to get them out. I like the fact that you can change out. It's not like a consistent roommate that starts to feel like they own the house, that you're having, you're hosting guests. It's a nicer feel. It's, there's better privacy, there's better, and there's times where, you know, with Airbnb, you can get 20 days a month rented on, you know, 20 days of the month rented for that room, let's say, and make the same as if you had the whole thing rented on a monthly basis, right? And you get 10 days with no roommates and you get the same rent. So I think there's some advantages to having Airbnb. Um, whenever you want to cancel, it's like tomorrow, you can turn the Airbnb listing off and the house is all yours. Whereas the roommate, it's more complicated. So I think it's a better way to do it is to put the rooms on Airbnb, to be honest. I guess COVID throws a wrench in that a little bit, but if you screen people and you're careful, I think you'd be okay. Elaine says, what are your thoughts on leveraging a margin account? Uh, so a margin account, uh, you have the option to buy on margin. And what are the thoughts on that? There's nothing wrong with buying on margin if you're careful with what you're buying. So if you're using you know, margin to you know, options trade and you're putting yourself in significant risk of having to fulfill a contract on margin, and you don't end up and you get way out of the money and you're, you're you know, underwater, then that can be very dangerous, right? But a good trade on margin is a great trade. So I guess it depends. On margin, you can borrow like four or five, 6%. It's pretty cheap, um, the cost of debt in a margin account. So if you're buying solid blue chip stuff that you know pays a solid dividend that you wanna own long-term, there's nothing wrong with buying on margin. Um, but just be careful, it depends, depends on the strategy you're using. Like if you're trading penny stocks, it might be a little bit different than if you're buying, you know, uh, Enbridge as an example, like this paying a 7% dividend or, you know, it depends on what you're buying, I guess. Like a solid utility company is different than buying penny stocks. 
Trevor says, you say you aren't successful at YouTube, but that depends on how you define success. Income or helping people, educating or providing wealthy folks uh, do have a heart or proving that wealthy folks do have a heart. Trevor, good point. That was very insightful actually, that comment. And it depends on the yardstick that you use to measure success. I think some people might look at my channel and say, Mike, wow, 20, well, we have 27,000 subscribers. Wow, that's, that's an accomplishment. But if you look at the time I've been doing YouTube and how many hours I've put into it, not very good. Uh, so that wouldn't be a good you know, metric. Income, like the YouTube channel makes nothing. Um, the ad revenue is like nothing. Sometimes it's a hundred bucks a month, sometimes it's less. But, you know, there are times where, you know, in January, when I was featured on, um, on, uh, shoot, what was her show? The uh, Daily Mail TV did the feature on me. And then it got picked up by um, the Sun paper in the UK. It was number one on trending in January. And uh, what was that show that I went on? Saluting me now. Check my stories to see it there. Someone, someone remind me what was the show that I went on. Um, it was cool. It was my first TV appearance with my wife. We went on it, and it was it was a good experience. They they flew us to New York. But during that month, when I was featured, I think I had you know, $1,100 or $1,000 in ad revenue. And so sometimes it can be a really good month, but usually not. Um, there's been a lot of really cool things that have come out of this channel. I've met a lot of really cool people. And from what I've heard, I've helped thousands of people. Um, people say that I'm helping them, so I have to take them at their word. And and that, to me, has been the biggest piece. I've got this cup here, this tin cup of something. Um, Hey Mike, I'm watching from Ireland. Europe Live, big fan. <laughs> Thanks, appreciate that. That's awesome. Ah, Tamron Hall Show, the Tamron Hall Show. Thank you. Um, which was a cool experience to see backstage and to to get to experience all of that um, in the studio and, and all that kind of cool stuff. But um, yeah, so I've got a lot of cool life experiences out of YouTube. But from a pure monetary perspective, it's not been a good decision. I could have spent that time doing real estate deals and you know, produced a lot more. I'm glad that guys like Matt McKeever, I was on his channel for like, geez, six months or a year, just being a guest on his channel. He's like, dude, you gotta have your own channel. And he's just pushing me in. So I did, and I'm glad I did. Um, I've met a lot of really cool people along the way. And I think that there is value in my brand. Like, I don't know, maybe objectively, I'm top 20 influencers in Ontario, maybe in Canada for real estate investing. There aren't a lot of people who have done real estate investing at a high level and then talk about it openly like I do, like, you know, guys like Matt McKeever do, like, you know, Andrew Hines podcast or Irwin is up there, with Mr. Hamilton, right? Um, and having like the opportunity to network with all those guys. I get the chance to get into the room with any of those guys whenever I want, right? Like any of the top 20 influencers in real estate, I could probably get in the room, right? So there's some value, I guess, to being consistent every week and, and showing people that, you know, you're honest and accountable and hey, like, it's hard to fake. I've got hundreds of thousands of comments on my videos. Every week, I get hundreds of people jumping in and commenting and it's hard to fake that. Like if I'm going to do a deal or some, something with someone and like, is Mike a good guy? They could go on and look at hundreds of hours of me being candidly live with hundreds of people tens of thousands of people watching me and commenting. And it'd be pretty hard for me to filter out live 
all of the comments. Like, if I owed people money right now, or I was screwing people over, you'd be hearing about it in the comments. People would be jumping on. You guys remember uh, you know, a few months ago, I had people jumping in the comments live. I, I've had, some of them are just like random people taunting swear words, but I've had people jump in, like tenants jump in, right? And you can't fake that stuff, right? So there is something to um, affluence and influence. And so there's some value, I think, in building a brand around yourself. And I think that even if your goal isn't to give back the way mine has been or to, you know, that's what I felt like when I started this journey was like I had to give back in some way because I've been so lucky and so fortunate, right? Um, I paid Mike $100 to paint a chicken coop and he never did it. <laughs> what is a chicken coop? <laughs> I like that. That's jokes. I don't, uh, I don't paint chicken coops, so that, that story doesn't stick. Um, I like that though. That's troll. Hi, Mike. How is the family loving Florida? I plan on moving in two years. So nature, uh, nature girl. I'm not in Florida right now, but uh, I think the border's still closed. I have to check on that. I think the border's still closed. But uh, we, we loved Florida when we went and we continue, we want to continue going, you know, every winter pending shutdowns and COVID. We'll see. But um, yeah, Florida's a fantastic place that I'd like to spend my winters. Either there or Arizona. I think Florida or Arizona are the two winners for winners for my winters. If I rent out my basement suite, not registered as such, and rent it out as a roommate but separated, how can I claim the rent as income? Well, you would claim it to the CRA as income. They don't care whether it's legal or not. The legality of your basement being a room or a suite would be up to your local municipality. If you live in the country, like no one cares. If you live in like a city, your neighbors might call on you and complain. The only time it's an issue is if there's a complaint. So it's a complaint driven thing. Um, like if you have neighbors that are all cool, if you have like a person living in your basement, cool. Um, it's only if you have dick neighbors who are like, I don't want you to have someone living in your basement, then they called on you and then you'd have issues. In which case you could have a roommate in your basement, like open the door up between your living room and your basement and it's not a separate suite. Share, you know, a living room or something together or, you know, like who cares? I don't know why people get so involved in people's business. As someone who's been a house hacker and had neighbors call on them, it's, I actually, you guys don't know this, but my last house, I literally left because the neighbors wouldn't leave me alone about having mentee roommates. They're like, this is a single family neighborhood. You're not allowed to have more than uh, three people living in your house. And I'm like, what do people have like six kids? They're like, that's fine if you're all in the same family. Like I, I literally had neighbors that would just pester me all the time. It was brutal. I had to get out of that house. I literally got out of the house because I had terrible neighbors. And so, yeah, I mean, bylaw, the whole bylaw thing where you can't have, you know, someone living in your basement. Like here in London, Ontario, you can have three roommates um, who are not related that you rent to uh, without a rental license. Anything more than three, you need a rental license. So that's the rule. Um, there's also strange rules. Like in London, Ontario, you can't have more than five bedrooms in any house. If you have an 18,000 square foot house in London, Ontario, you get five rooms, <laughs> five bedrooms. You put in six, uh-oh. Nope, that's contrary to the bylaw, unless you're grandfather and you have some old mansion that somehow had a rental license on it from a previous owner. Stupid rules, like some old farts who are ready to die were like, just before I die, I gotta vote and make sure that there can be no students in my neighborhood, so there can't be more than five bedrooms. <laughs> yeah, five bedrooms and 25 offices. Like actually, actually, 
the thing is, in the, in the higher neighbor, like in the really rich neighborhoods, further away from the universities, no one cares. Like in my neighborhood here in Byron, I don't think people care about the five bedroom rule. Um, there's some, like some courts here in Byron that have houses that are six, 7,000 square feet. Those houses probably have four or five dens, a few living rooms, you know, five bathrooms or more. And they could easily have more than five bedrooms. Like you just have to label five bedrooms and the rest like offices, dens, family, second family room, you know, extra dining room, whatever, um, powder room, butler's kitchen. Like it's just stupid. You label it on the drawing, determines if you're contrary to the bylaw or not. And then like trying to prove that, like, what you're trying to tell me, I can't have someone sleep in my office. I can't have a polo couch to sleep someone for a night. I can't have family come. I can't have six kids. What if I had six kids? You're telling me I can't live in London, Ontario if I have six kids? Because I can't have more than five bedrooms. So what do I do with my sixth child? What, they, they can't sleep in the office. Now they have human habitation in an office. So they can't sleep there. Where are they gonna sleep? Oh, two per room? <laughs> like, there's just some stupid bylaws. Like, I hate bylaw. I think it's, you know, I get the idea behind, you know, bylaw and that like, people should maintain their yards and there shouldn't be garbage everywhere and you know, keep good orderly properties, you know, keeps up property value for everyone else. But if someone wants to have, you know, six kids and six bedrooms, who cares? Like, who cares between five or six? I don't know. I get, there, I get there's like a point where like, you don't want a student house that's got like 10 students in it or something. But if you read the bylaw, you're allowed two people per bedroom in London. So the five bedroom rule means you can have 10 students in a five bedroom house. They can live two per room. Um, so like, they're not even solving, like there's a way around the issue anyway for someone who's really trying to be creative and stay within the bylaws. So, I don't know. I don't know, my rant is down about that. I just, I'm gonna end up in the country eventually with my own little private moat around my lands. And if Paolo wants to come in, they're gonna have to get through my security and my gated doors. <laughs> That'll be the end goal, is to do whatever the fuck you want, within reason. As long as you're not hurting anyone else, like. Anyway, back to the stream. Is it easy to get into private mortgage lending? Um, yes. I would say it's pretty easy. You get a lawyer and you go to a mortgage broker and you say, hey, can you write up a contract for me? And there you go. Thoughts on adding a garage to a home? Is it worth the cost? So I guess it really depends on, <laughs> I love that the guy who's trolling for the hundred dollar chicken coop asked me a really thoughtful question. So now I know you're really trolling and joking me. Uh, thoughts on adding a garage to a home? So. Yes and no. Um, in an area where everyone else, all the comps have garages, adding a garage adds value. I have a property in Mount Bridges right now that I was thinking about selling, which I'm now thinking about keeping and cash backing to myself. Um, sorry, trading it out of my corporate and my personal name. Um, I, I was thinking that property, as an example, has all the comps around have garages. And so to break a certain price point, you need the garage. And it's a property that doesn't have a garage, so I should build a garage by my own logic on that property. But there are, let's say you live in a neighborhood where like no one has garages. If you add a garage, it might not even add enough value to justify the cost of the garage. Now a single garage costs like 15 grand typically to build, it doubles like 30, something like that. I mean, plus or minus, depends on the, the grade and you know, if there's stuff, trees in the way, whatever, there's a whole bunch of factors that come into play. And it could cost more depending if you wanna make it fancy versus just a basic um, garage. Depends if you want to insulate it. And there's a whole bunch of other factors that are going to come into play. But it could make sense. Um, it really just depends. Oh, I think I saw a super chat come in here. 
Aiden O'Hara. Aiden, how you doing? I hope all is well with you. Hope you've been safe out at sea and that you know things are good. And I, I need to make a trip to Australia um, at some point. I think that would be that's on the bucket list. I'm gonna come visit you at some point. See how the, those rental properties are going. Send me a message on Instagram. We'll have to connect. We'll have to connect again soon. Thank you for the super chat. Appreciate it. Uh, okay, next question. Lost my place again. Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Oh, message retracted. Hmm, shenanigans. Kaylee says, how are you regaining back your time achieving fire? Watching clouds with little one? <laughs> Someone's watching my stories on Instagram, at Mike Roseheart. Um, what are your goals now in the real estate part? So Kaylee, um, I had originally set a goal of holding personally with no partners, 10 million in real estate. And I figured with Burring, I could do it with none of my own money. So I would own about 10 million bucks in real estate, refinance everything out. With 10 million in real estate, there'd be about 2 million trapped in equity that I couldn't get out because you gotta keep 20% down in the property no matter what you do. Even if it's created equity, not even your money that you made. You got your money out, but there's still equity in the property, right? Um, 10 million in real estate holdings, a couple of million in stock holdings, a couple of million in lending, and then a private business. It was like my ultimate, ultimate, I thought at that point, like if appreciation is 3% a year, 3% on a $10 million real estate portfolio. And $10 million real estate portfolio is not a lot. That's 20 properties in London, Ontario. 20 decent half million dollar size properties. Um, and if they're even bigger than half, if they're $600,000 houses, then it's even less, like 15, 16 properties, depending on the size of the properties. And so you get like 13, 3% appreciation on that. And you're looking at like 300,000 a year appreciation. And then I thought from cash flow, you get 100 or 200 or something like that. And then you have your lending, a couple hundred, and then your stock portfolio for diversity and your business. So that was kind of like the ultimate fat fire for me or like lux fire. I didn't like the term fat fire. So I always used lux, like luxury fire. I think there's like lean fire, which is like the frugal fire. And then there's like lux fire, which is the ultimate, you know, you have so much passive income that you can just do whatever you want, really enjoy your retirement. Um, so I'm striving towards the, the lux fire. And a lot of what I do anyway doesn't require money. Um, hang out with my daughter, go to the park. My brother's open right now, so I need to be up there spending time with family. I'm going to end the stream in a couple of minutes here. But my brother's visiting tonight, and we're hosting him, and it's, it's great um, to have family over and to spend time with family and to, you know, have friends over and just hang out with the boys and, you know, my kids and stuff like that. So for me, it's more about I've been enjoying those moments more than anything else. But I do wake up most mornings with an itch to be productive and creative. And I find that I'm a business orientated mind. And so I'll end up applying myself in those contexts and finding that I generate income when I do what I love. And the scoreboard for how well I'm doing at what I love, the game of real estate or the game of business or the game of life from the financial side is the scoreboard's money. And so it's a piece of it. But it's less about the money. Like at my stage in the game, it's really not about the money. It's about, you know, finding ways to apply myself and to feel like I'm having a, an impact on the world and at the same time being a good mentor and a good dad. And I don't know. I don't know what the next challenge is. 2021 is going to be a year of maybe I write a book. Um, it's on my bucket list. I don't know if 2021 is the year or 2022 is the year, but a book is in there. Um, 
I want to do that. I want to give back in that way. Probably I'll sell the book for like five or 10 bucks, but I'm going to donate the proceeds from the book to some cause. I don't know if it's a, a mentorship type fund. I don't know. I've been thinking about that. Um, I don't know if I can talk about it yet. Uh, something I can't share yet, but I'll share in a couple episodes um, on the personal front. I'll share that soon, but I can't share it yet. I have to tune in for those episodes, but yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I just, my favorite day is probably going for you know a hike or a walk with friends, with my family, with my daughter. And most of the stuff we do doesn't cost money. So Logan says, I listened to the podcast you were on this week. So it must have been Irwin's podcast, Mr. Hamilton. And the host and you talked about stock hacking strategies for options. What were your thoughts on it? So Logan, I haven't dove into the course yet. Um, I will be diving into it. And if it's good, I'm going to recommend it. If it's solid, I'm, you're going to hear me talking about it a lot. Um, I allegedly talking to a few of the students and a few of the people who have been through the stock hacking course that Mr. Hamilton, uh, Irwin sells, um, they've had between two and 3% annual returns every month. So that's annualized 36%. Basically just trading options on stocks they'd want to buy anyway. So if they get out of the money, they execute on the contract, they get paid to buy the stock they're going to buy anyway, large blue chip stuff. So at, you know, face value, I haven't dove into it, but at face value, it seems to make a lot of sense. And um, you know I'm gonna be dabbling. And if it's good, I'm gonna tell you about it. And yeah, so stay tuned. That's where I am now, is Arizona. Cool, do how to, have to reach out on Instagram and uh, if I make my way to Arizona, you'll have to host me and show me what's cool in your area. If you get lunch or something. Dave says, how did you and do you manage your time? We all have 24 hours. And I'm in the accumulating phase and time is my issue to manage everything. Jeez, you know, one of the things you have to remember is that in order to have great success, every person who's had great success and earned it has had to sacrifice. And sacrifice by definition means giving something else up to have something else that you want more. That is that is a sacrifice. Like, hey, I sacrificed my life to save your life. Like there's, there's a cost to sacrificing. And so we all have the same amount of time. For me to achieve more than you, or achieve more than whatever, for X person to achieve more than Y person, X person has to give something else up. Maybe you used to, you know, game for five hours. You might have to tone that down to one hour and spend four hours more working. Maybe you used to sleep 10 hours and now you gotta sleep seven hours. Maybe you used to spend two and a half hours reading fiction books. And now instead of reading fiction books, you read nonfiction, real estate books, money books, you read stuff about mindset and business and growth and you change how you were spending your time and you focus that time on things that are going to produce more outcomes that take you to where you wanna be. Okay, we're gonna wrap up here. I think I'm through all the questions. Oh no, I missed a few. I missed this one. Would you use a line of credit for a down payment? Yes. I have, I'll be $40,000 in debt, but the building has cash on cash return of 18%. Port City, it could make sense to, you know, where it makes sense to put the down payment up and refinance it out and then have a strategy to pay back your line of credit can make a lot of sense. Make sure you have an emergency fund, even if it's another line of credit that's untouched. Maybe it's cash or stocks you can sell, but what if things go bad? What if the property needs 10,000 in work? Do you have that money available? Keeping, you know, 5%, 
of your you know value of your real estate portfolio in liquid in some way whether there's a lot of credit or, or whatever is prudent and smart you need to have liquidity to survive in real estate no liquidity is dangerous so it's okay to lever up and buy on line of credit in fact i recommend it it's putting your line of credit to work but make sure you don't overlever yourself where there's no liquidity when there's no liquidity that's when you're forced to sell that's where real estate can get nasty is where you have liquidity issues Seema Watson, welcome to the stream. Hi, thank you for joining. I think I got all the questions. Um, if I missed one, put it in the comments and I'll respond for everyone to see. Oh, I missed one. Max says, I'll be finishing the basement of my townhouse. What do you think will add more value? Adding a bedroom with a much smaller living space or just a large open living room with added wet bar? I personally think if the area value, say you have a two bedroom condo, making it a three bedroom condo is extremely valuable. Say you have a six bedroom condo, making it a seven bedroom condo is not valuable. So it depends on the comps in the area, it depends on the type of condo that you have. So if you have a two bedroom condo, adding another room, making it a three bedroom is making it extremely accessible to someone else who wants to buy it or to a tenant, very valuable. If it's a three bedroom condo and you're adding a fourth room, even if it's an office, there's a trend where both mom and dad are working from home now. And so people need a mom and dad at home office. It's very common, I think, in the future for us to see two offices in a home. And they're gonna have a work from home office for mom and a work from home office for dad. And so I think that long-term, you'd be better served putting in the office or the bedroom and then having a little bit smaller living room. That's just my personal opinion. Again, it depends on the property and the comps. It's hard to make that call without more context. Thank you all so much for watching. Sorry, I didn't get those last question here. Do you recommend any books? How do I know a house and purchasing is good value? Go look at a hundred properties and you'll start to figure out and you look at the comps in the area, see what properties are selling for. You've got other comparable properties that have sold and you'll get to know whether it was a good value or not. Um, good books, there's tons of good books and good podcasts and I don't have good recommendations list now, but you can go out there and search like some, some great business mindset books and things like that. One of the first books that turned me on to frugality and early retirement as a concept was the book Early Retirement Extreme by Jacob Lund Fisker. I guess to meet the author himself and stay at his house for a night and he signed my book, which was cool. Um, I always like to plug his book. It's a great, my mindset's shifted from where it was when I read his book initially, so I don't know if I would appreciate his book in the same way that I do now, um, or as much as I did then but fantastic book. Um, there's lots of great books, like Rich Dad Poor Dad is a, a bunch of good books that can get you started into the, into the journey. Okay, um, I'm gonna end this stream and I'll see you guys all next week at 7 p.m. Eastern from 7 to 8 p.m. I go live every week for the Mike Rosart Show. Tune in, bring your questions. If I missed your question today, put in the comments and I'll answer it for everyone to watch. Thank you all so much for watching. The secret to well through you is learning to master the three levers of personal finance. Spend less, earn more, and maximize the returns on the difference. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you all next week.